The experts in religion say exorcisms done by the Catholic Church and others are on the rise. A more basic question here, how do and why do people get possessed in the first place? Whether you believe it or not, the number of people calling for exorcisms or being exorcised is growing in numbers, even here in our own backyard. And experts say while some of what you see on TV is Hollywood magic, most of it is not. Father Lampert tells me he's receiving about 1,800 calls, emails and letters every year from people all over the world who believe they're possessed. More than half of those, he says, come from people who aren't even Catholic or religious at all. When I was first appointed, I would get maybe three or four calls a week. Now I get like 35 calls a week. This massive spike in requests, he thinks, is due to religion diminishing around the world. Because faith is in decline, when people experience something in their lives that they can't really figure out, then it leads them to believe that maybe it's something evil or demonic. But it's not as simple as believing you're possessed and calling an exorcist. The Catholic Church has strict protocols and processes that priests must follow before deeming an exorcism to be appropriate. Exorcists are trained to be skeptics. I should be the last person to believe that a person is possessed. Every other possible explanation needs to be exhausted before I make that determination. The very first step of the protocol would be for the person to have some type of psychiatric evaluation. Those wanting help then have to answer a series of questions covering their psychological history and whether they've had addiction issues. They're also asked if they have had any experience or history of engaging in the occult, witchcraft, black magic. Hello and welcome to the Beyond the Edge of Darkness podcast. I hope you are all doing well and staying safe in these very strange times. This week we look at the real demonic possession case that inspired the movie The Exorcist. In mid-1949, several newspaper articles printed anonymous reports of an alleged possession and exorcism. The source for these reports is thought to be the family's former pastor, Luther Miles Schultz. According to one account, a total of 48 people witnessed this exorcism, nine of them Jesuits. Let's go beyond the edge of darkness. In January 1949, the 13-year-old boy living there seemed like a perfectly normal teenager. Attending school, concentrating on his studies, he was slightly built and unathletic, preferring to stay indoors listening to his favorite programs on the radio and playing board games. Suddenly, witnesses say, a series of unexplained events began. Scratching sounds erupted from the walls and the floors of the family's home. The boy's bed would shake, furniture would slide across the room, and dresser drawers would fly open. At first, his parents thought these strange occurrences were related to the boy's distress over the recent death of a favorite aunt. The aunt had schooled the boy in her beliefs about communicating with the dead. He had tried contacting her through a Ouija board, 
Perhaps they thought the strange events were messages from the dead. The parents turned first to their Lutheran minister for help and later to doctors, but nothing worked. Then, deep scratches began appearing on the boy's body that witnesses said the boy could not have made. The minister suggested the family contact a Catholic priest. They went to St. James Church in Mount Rainier, Maryland to meet Father Albert Hughes. Hughes agreed to visit the boy. Later, over dinner at the rectory, Hughes told fellow priest Frank Bober about the meeting. He said that the room would get extremely cold to the point that she would be shivering. The boy was obviously the one that was responsible for moving objects around the room, like the phone off the desk. There was uh, a plethora of vehement uh, statements against God and sacred things. Father Hughes, just 29 years old at the time, was unprepared to deal with the bizarre force that seemed to be inhabiting the boy. He was certainly befuddled by all of this in terms of, you know, contemporary scientific input. But eventually he felt that, you know, there was no option but <laughs> that he was dealing with, you know, uh, satanic forces. Father Hughes became convinced that exorcism, an arcane ritual requiring the approval of the archbishop, was the answer. The rite of exorcism was perfectly delineated, so his feeling was, well, I will follow this and it should work. The parents checked the boy into Washington's Georgetown University Hospital. He was strapped to the bed. Father Hughes blessed the child, knelt at the bedside, and the ritual began. He prayed in Latin to the saints. Then, calling on God, he commanded that the boy be delivered from evil. And the boy broke the strap and pulled out a spring and gashed Father Hughes's arm from the top to the wrist. Hughes, traumatized both physically and mentally, abandoned the exorcism and left St. James to recover. The boy's parents, worried now that their son could be violent, watched for new evidence of the supposedly evil presence. When freshly scratched markings on the boy's abdomen appeared, spelling the word Lewis, the parents believed they had a sign. They had relatives in St. Louis, where the boy's late aunt had lived, and they went there for help. Within days, the parents asked a Jesuit priest at nearby St. Louis University to perform an exorcism. It was early March, seven weeks into the boy's strange odyssey. The priest said before the archbishop would approve the exorcism, doctors would have to rule out all physical and mental causes for the boy's behavior. The doctors claimed they did. The Archbishop chose the 52-year-old pastor of the university's church, Father William Bowdern, as the exorcist. Bowdern had the required qualifications according to his superior. He was pious, prudent, and mature of years, just as the exorcism ritual dictated. 
Bowden asked a professor and fellow priest, Raymond Bishop, then 43 years old, to assist him. He also included Walter Halloran. I used to drive for Father Bowden, and uh, one evening just before supper, he came up to me and he asked, he said, uh, would you take me someplace tonight? So I said, sure. A 26-year-old seminary student at the time, Father Halloran had no idea he was about to assist in an exorcism until Father Bowden began the prayers in the home of the boy's relatives. And I was kneeling at the foot of the bed, leaning on the bed with my elbows, and the bed started going up and down. I guess I looked a little surprised because he stopped for a minute and just looked over and says, don't worry. So I went on with the prayers and then I think the next thing that happened is that uh, a bottle of holy water flew across the room. It was sitting on a bureau, and it went flying across the room, crashed into the wall. The two priests performed the ritual as Father Halloran and family members held the boy down. Night after night, the priests tried to pin relics of saints on the boy and place a crucifix in his hand. They sprinkled holy water and repeatedly recited the prayers of the exorcism rituals. During the prayers of exorcism, the child would become real agitated and thrash around. Holy water would always bring a reaction from the little boy, you know, of anger, uh, not wanting the holy water sprinkled on him and that sort of thing. The boy also showed extreme anger toward the priests, according to the author of The Exorcist, William Peter Blatty. The boy was able to spit copiously and prodigious distances with remarkable accuracy. He could spit across a room 20 to 25 feet and hit a priest in the eye and apparently was unerring. There were a couple of times when a child would uh, make statements about people that were present. He addressed one of the priests who I think was only there once. And he said, oh, he says, I'm surprised to see you in hell. He says, how did you ever get down here? The ordeal usually ended well after midnight, and the boy would fall asleep. The priests recorded the night's events in a diary signed by all the witnesses, memory of what had occurred the night before. When the exorcism in St. Louis entered its third week, Father Bowden suggested the boy should convert to Catholicism. Do you know what a sacrament is? The parents agreed, and the boy began to take religious instruction during the day in the rectory of the St. Louis University Church. Bowden also decided to move the exorcism there. Now, closer to the church, the intensity of the boy's reactions increased. Bloody brandings again rose on his body in the form of words and figures. There would be arrows, I remember arrows. Uh, another time the word hell appeared. It was very, very uh, exact. You know, you didn't have to work your imagination to see what it was. But most of the time, there'd be long welts that'd go down his arms, down his legs, across his abdomen, and on his chest. Uh, one time, uh, one of the spots looked something like the you know, the hooded drawings you have of the devil. In one account that was so vivid, Father Bowden recounted in his diary that while he was speaking to the boy, he happened to glance down at his leg and 
before his eyes was as though this tiny, this was a two-pronged pitchfork, ran all the way down from his inner upper thigh down to about the ankle, uh, drawing blood all the way down. The ritual explicitly prohibits dialogue with the demon, but directs the exorcist to demand answers to two questions. What is your name? And what is the day and hour you will depart? So you ask those, and then you pause for an answer. Sometimes an answer is given. Like one time the child respond, le responded, Legion, to what is your name? At other times, the boy, speaking in an unfamiliar voice, identified himself as Spite or the Devil. One night, the voice reportedly offered to prove that it was the Devil. I will awaken the boy, it said, and he will be pleasant. The boy instantly awoke and he was calm. Later, the voice said, I will wake him up and he will be awful. The boy woke up in a cursing fit. The voice would often taunt the priests, saying that a certain word had to be revealed before the spirit would leave. As closely as I can remember, these are the words. I will not go until he says a certain word, and I will not, him, will not let him say the word. By now, according to Halloran, the battle for the boy's soul seemed endless. Night after night, the exorcist would order them to return to the rectory, repeat the ritual, and confront the forces of the unexplained. By April 1949, the teenage boy supposedly possessed by the devil had undergone almost five weeks of nightly exorcism rites. The boy's physical condition had weakened dramatically, and the priests feared that he was becoming dangerously ill. As a precaution, the exorcist decided to move the boy again, this time to the Alexian Brothers Catholic Hospital near St. Louis University. No one noticed when someone placed a statue of St. Michael the Archangel in the room. The exorcist intensified his efforts to convert the boy to Catholicism. He wanted him to accept communion. Every time Father Bowden would go to give him a host, then he'd start acting very wildly and have to be held. He had knocked the host out of Father Bowden's hand, and uh, he hit Father Bowden, and uh, you know, then he grit his teeth and just refused to accept anything in his mouth. It must have taken two hours before he accepted the host. Easter passed with no change in the boy's behavior. The exorcist felt an urgent need to try something different. He decided to ask the ritual's required questions in English, not Latin. At first, there was the usual mix of spitting and cursing, but then the boy cried out. He said St. Michael was present. St. Michael the Archangel was present, and then he described him. In a deep, mature voice, the boy then said, Satan, I command you to leave in the name of Dominus. Leave now. The exorcist believed the boy had at last uttered the word of release, Dominus, Latin for Lord. Suddenly, according to Halloran, the boy struggled and his body contorted wildly. The child became very violent 
and uh, there was a huge noise, an explosion or report, and a very, very bright light in the sanctuary of the church, and that disappeared. The boy fell into a deep sleep. When he awoke, he said the ordeal was over. He told of dreaming of a beautiful angel who carried a fiery sword and conquered demons. Then he fell back asleep. When the boy awoke again, all memories of his exorcism had vanished. The boy and his family returned to Maryland and converted to Catholicism. For nearly five decades, witnesses have protected his identity. Now, in his 60s, they say he has lived a rather ordinary life. He named his son Michael. Did an evil spirit possess the boy? Did a medieval ritual free a child from the grasp of Satan? Father Bowder, now deceased, confirmed the exorcism in a letter to author William Peter Blatty. He said, I can tell you one thing. The case that I was involved in was the real thing. I had no doubt about it then. I have no doubt about it now. The fact that the exorcism was successful is it shows that uh, the power of God is certainly stronger than the power of the devil. Skeptics dismiss Halloran's claim. Their explanations for the boy's actions do not include the devil. A professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, Henry Kelly, a former Jesuit seminarian, says he believes the boy's so-called possessed behavior was brought on by the exorcism ritual itself. As soon as he began the rite of exorcism, then the symptoms of possession began. And I uh, conclude from this uh, that the very rite of exorcism caused the symptoms of possession. This is a phenomenon that has happened in the past, that uh, suggestion brings the symptoms on and suggestion cures the symptoms. Blatty, however, says Father Bowdern tested that theory. The exorcist would attempt to trick the boy, and instead of reading the, the ritual, in Latin, they would read Caesar's Gallic Wars to see what the response would be, and there would be a fiendish demonic response. Never happened. Others speculate that the boy and his aunt had an inappropriate physical relationship, and her death triggered his condition. Jesuit priest Francis Cleary, a professor of theology at St. Louis University, contends the exorcism is a story of incest and psychological dysfunction, not possession. It would seem to me, from what I have read and uh, encountered, that we're dealing with the case of a boy who has just moved into puberty, who may well have had a prehistory of incestuous encounters with his aunt. It would be a mistake to take that experience of psychological sickness, disease, and paranormal phenomena, and without justification, throw that into a religious context. Leave religion out of it. it doesn't belong here. Psychiatrist Dr. David Baer says new research about brain disorders may provide medical explanations for the boy's so-called possession. The brain is boy's so-called possession. The brain is a combination of electrical circuits and chemical systems. Uh, the way one brain cell signals another, in most cases, is by releasing a chemical. 
So abnormal chemicals in the brain can produce unusual states, changes in behavior, a sense of possession. Dr. Baer says the boy may have suffered from temporal lobe epilepsy. Temporal lobe epilepsy can be caused by things like infections, encephalitis, an infection of the brain, and that can be temporary. Temporal lobe seizures often begin in puberty. Baer thinks seizures in the temporal lobe, which is connected to what's known as the autonomic nervous system, may also explain the skin welts. And he's skeptical about the accounts of words spelled out on the boy's body. And I do wonder, in the case of this young boy, whether some of the people who observed the welts and the changes in his skin added their own interpretation of what they saw. Halloran believes the welts, like the boy's so-called possession, were real and cannot be explained by modern science. I think that anyone could uh, suffer possession. And I think it's basically because of the power that Satan has and also inherent weaknesses that we have. My own feeling is that this particular case was an authentic case of possession, whatever that is, and that the boy had lucid moments in which he was not under that influence, but during which he did what this psychic, he vamped. Here were priests all around him conducting this grand and formal impressive rite of exorcism, witnesses in the room. I'm guessing that he just played along for a portion of it, but that other than these spells, he, he was in the grip of something inexplicable. Neither mental illness nor neurological disease can possibly explain the accounts of the shaking bed or the flying drawers. Were the 48 priests, doctors, and family members mistaken when they attested to the otherworldly events they witnessed? Skeptics say yes and argue that the roots of the boy's behavior are in his brain. Believers say the true cause stares at us from the molten depths of the unexplained. There is a war that's being waged between good and evil. Faith in God will lead us in one direction. The lack of faith will lead us in another. I'm Father Vincent Lampert. I've been a Catholic priest for the past 25 years. I was appointed by my Archbishop to be the exorcist for Indianapolis. It was not a position that I sought, but in 2005, the Archbishop selected me for the role. He told me that he wanted a priest who believed in the reality of evil, but not one who would be so gullible to believe that everybody who came to him was actually up against the forces of evil. When I was appointed, I became one of only 12 officially appointed exorcists in the United States. That number has now grown to around 50. Some people will dabble in the things of the occult, believing that perhaps they're just fun and entertaining, but what they may not fully realize is that they're dabbling with evil, and they could be opening up an entry point for evil into their lives. Take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body, which will be given up for you. I'm the pastor here at St. Malachi Parish in Brownsburg, Indiana. 
the parish has approximately 2,500 families, or just around 9,000 parishioners. There are many people who laugh at the notion of demonic possession or even the reality itself, but the Catholic Church does teach that evil is a reality and it is personified in the person of the devil. So over the years, exorcism has undergone many different transformations. Exorcism goes back even before the time of Christ, but exorcisms became truly efficacious or real with the coming of Christ. The oldest formalized version of the rite of exorcism would date back to 1614. It was revised in 1999. Some of the manifestations I've witnessed over the years seem kind of incredible, incredulous. I think the manifestations that one sees in movies, such as The Exorcist, all that truly is possible. Eyes rolling in the back of the head, foaming at the mouth, growling and snarling like a wild animal, uh, strong stenches, uh, the temperature in the room will drop, bodily contortions. I remember a person who began to levitate during the exorcism. Now these manifestations are meant to distract the exorcist. And I learned quickly that the exorcist should not focus on the manifestations of evil, but focus on the power of God that is at work. There's an international association of exorcists, which received official Vatican approval just about two years ago. I am a member of that organization, and there's a gathering in Rome every other year. Demonic possession is extremely rare. One out of every 5,000 people who contact me is a genuine case of demonic possession. Hello, Mary, how are you? Obviously, this is a ministry that I cannot do alone. So there's a lady that works with me, and I jokingly like to refer to her as my ex or assistant. She's really the first line of defense. The majority of people that she talks to just need a listening ear. I can help answer any questions that you have. Well, I've got a revolving list right now of some people that are local because they would be in our diocese. I have that one guy from southern Indiana that keeps calling. And, and I don't think he remembers all the times that we've talked because he always acts like no one has ever talked to me or ever tried to help me. No and that's what help. gives credence to the fact that this is truly something of a mental health issue as opposed to something that's demonic. Of course, it doesn't help, too, because I also, you know, I was just talking with another priest. He was telling me that he just doesn't believe any of this, mm -hmm. you know. Some people will accept what the church believes and teaches about the reality of evil. Some people won't. This is where I perform my most intense case of exorcism. It took place five years ago here in this convent. The items I will use for exorcism. And in addition, in my bag, I also have the holy water that I would use. We came into the space, the spouse who was very strong and confident in his belief, the woman who was afflicted sat down here. You could smell in the air the sense of perspiration just the anxiety of what was about to take place. No sooner did the drops of water hit the head of the lady than the manifestations began immediately. 
she exhibited vocal outbursts, speaking in languages that she didn't otherwise know, exhibiting strength beyond the normal capacity of a person, and also an aversion to things of a sacred nature. And all this was going on as I was praying. Sancte Michel Archangeli, defendi nos in prelio, contra nequitiam et in sit Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison. And so I commanded the demon Leviathan to depart immediately. And then the demon that had been speaking in this very strong, authoritative voice began to speak like a little baby and then looked at me and said, Hail Mary, full of grace. And there was a shriek and all the manifestations of evil ended because the presence of evil was now completely gone. People will believe what they will, so it's not really my task to try to convince people of something. Because if you're a person of faith, you begin with the premise that believing is seeing. People that may come from more of a scientific background may begin with the premise that I have to see in order to believe. There is a war that's being waged between good and evil. Faith in God will lead us in one direction. The lack of faith will lead us in another. 